from, from them to, uh, to bring a message about that organization and about God's heart for justice and what God is doing around the world. So on pages 10 and 11, you get more information about the sermon and about, about Young and his uh, involvement in that. So we're so excited that you're with us. Welcome. And we're looking forward to uh, hearing what God will speak through you this morning to us. Really thankful for this opportunity to share with everyone here and just thankful that the theme of this service works so well. Uh, Domestic uh, oppression and violence that we see here in our community. But also, for my part, what is happening also overseas and internationally. And um, I'm thankful because I love talking about IJM, the work that International Justice Mission has done and is doing, and their heart for those who are oppressed. But more than that, I really am so excited to always talk about God's heart for justice, that God breaks for justice, that he desires to redeem all of the effects of sin, all the brokenness around us that is spiritual, physical, relational, emotional, and God desires to redeem all of that to make it again, it is good, as he once said. I've been involved with IGM for about nine years. Uh, We went to our first prayer conference about nine years ago, my wife and I, and began developing a relationship with IJM. My wife currently works at IGM as an aftercare specialist overseeing specifically the area of uh, child sexual assault uh, in that uh, department. And um, IGM, if you don't know about it, is a Christian human rights agency that specifically works in the area of violent exploitation and oppression. And it works uh, particularly in areas overseas and focus on 20 different field offices throughout the world. Um, some of them are in Bolivia, uh, many in Southeast Asia, uh, uh, three or four in India, uh, Kenya, Africa, and many other places throughout the world. It's about 16 years old, and it was started by a man named Gary Haugen, who's the president, who um, went to Rwanda working for the DOJ. And when he went to Rwanda and saw this mi- mass genocide, and the fact that, and I don't know if you know this, that much of the massacres actually happened within church buildings, if they were uh, Hutu or Tutsi, happened by the church, and Nancy came back to the States, realized the church must be a place that protects against oppression, and began this organization called IJM. They focus on issues like sex trafficking, um, bonded labor or slavery, uh, police brutality, uh, violent uh, seizures of land from other people, and work on different things like that. To give you some idea of how sort of pervasive and prevalent these issues are, let me share with you a few statistics. Currently, there's an estimated 27 million people in slavery right now. Kevin Bales from Free the Slaves writes, there are likely more slaves in the world today than there have been at any other time in human history. For some quick perspective on that point, over the entire 350 years of the transatlantic slave trade, 13.5 million people were taken out of Africa. 
That's equal to just half the world's slave population today. Now, when I first heard that, I didn't believe them, right? Because that doesn't happen nowadays. And yet we see it, 27 million. There are nearly 2 million children exploited in the commercial sex trade. One in five women will be victims of rape or attempted rape uh, in their lifetime. 70% of prisoners in third world countries especially are detained and or beaten without charge or trial. What's called this pre-trial detention. And some men and women will be pre-trial detained. But the trial could not come for another three years. And some of them are in pre-trial detention longer than actually their sentence, which usually doesn't happen. It's estimated that there are 15 million children in forced labor right now in India. So the needs are great everywhere. But IGN particularly works in areas where there are good laws might exist, good laws might exist, but they're not being enforced or upheld for those who are poor and powerless. Many of us don't realize that the poor are not just vulnerable to poverty, to malnutrition, to illiteracy or disease. They're also much more vulnerable to violence, to oppression and exploitation. Gary Hagen, again, the president of IGM, uh, came out with a new book, uh, I think last month, called The Locust Effect. And he writes, the world overwhelmingly does not know that endemic to being poor is a vulnerability to violence. Violence is as much a part of what it means to be poor as being hungry, sick, homeless, or jobless. In fact, violence is one of the core reasons they are poor in the first place and one of the primary reasons they stay poor. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that. Right? What we need to send them is food, or we need to educate them, which is all very important. But what we also forget is that the poor needs protection. Thus, IJAN's vision is to rescue thousands, protect millions, and to prove that justice is possible for the poor. And to that end, their team of lawyers, investigators, aftercare specialists, therapists, work together to the end of, of, to strive for four goals. One of them is to rescue the victims, to actually go to the brothels, to go to these slave fields and free the people, to rescue them. But then also to restore them to wholeness, through counseling, through therapy, to restore them to wholeness. And then thirdly, they prosecute the perpetrators to bring justice to those who are oppressing others. And then fourthly, and I think very importantly, they also promote structural transformation. That many of these countries have great laws written on paper that are never executed properly and how to help a country, their police force, their judicial system, to be able to execute and enforce their laws properly. And so those are the four goals of IJM. But more than anything else, what I love about this organization is that their heart is driven by God's heart. 
right? And it doesn't really matter if it's merely just human compassion. But to know that it's driven by God's heart and his word. And that's what we want to do is look at Micah. The book of Micah is one place where we clearly see God's heart for justice. And we'll go through uh, verses here and there throughout the book. Micah prophesied to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah around 700 BC, which makes him uh, contemporary with Isaiah, Hosea, and also the prophet Amos. And like Amos, Micah focused much of his attention in this book on the social injustices that were being committed by these nations, the northern and the southern kingdom. And specifically, the injustices committed by those who have power in their hands, those who are powerful. I'm a father of three boys. I have two uh, uh, twins who are almost six and a young boy who's uh, three and a half. And as a father of three boys, I get to conduct sort of social experiments uh, throughout uh, their childhood. So, for example, I have three kids, but I have four pieces of candy. I give one, one, and then give two to another and see what happens and observe. (laughs) Maybe take notes, right? I have three children, but I have two toys. I give one, one. And then see how the other one reacts towards his siblings. Right? Social experiments. But the most interesting experiment, you can try this, is when you give one child authority. Now, it's a little bit more interesting with my family because uh, the, the twins are, you know, obviously the same age. And the third one thinks he's the same age. <laughs> so, really, I have triplets. And... Uh, Give one of them, who in their minds are equal, to give them authority. Inevitably, I'll hear something from the basement. You have to listen to me, because dad put me in charge. Right? He uses his power in order to what? Control his siblings. Or I'll hear something like, you need to, I get to pick the toy first. Because I'm the boss. I'm in charge. He uses his power to gain, to gratify his desire, to have more than others. Or, my favorite, I'll hear one of them, the one with authority say, you're not listening to me, I'm going to send you to timeout. (laughs) What do they do? He sees the power he has, and he uses it to oppress. Right? To control, to oppress. But the unfortunate thing is that as we get older, very little changes, right? The heart is the same. It manifests differently, and unfortunately, more violently. Lord Acton, a British historian from the 1800s, famously said, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is one of the central themes of the book of Micah, is this concept, Micah, is this concept of power. And God's designed purpose for what power is to be about. I want to talk about man's abuse of power, God's true power, and our redeemed power. 
Max Weber, a German sociologist from the 1800s, defines power as the capacity to carry out one's will or to produce one's own desired effects despite resistance. It is the ability to control and command others, events and or resources in a particular domain for a particular purpose. And in Genesis, we see that humans were given a great deal of this power, right? From the beginning, we were created in the image of God, which means we have abilities and status that was far greater than anyone else, anything else that was created. We were given the authority to steward and have dominion over all of creation, to be God's vice regents here on earth. Right? We were given all the resources that were available to us in the Garden of Eden. We had power and resources and authority. And this amazing power is given to us for the glory of God and to build his kingdom. But we know that when the fall happened, not just was there separation from God and man, but this power became corrupted and depraved because of sin. And rather than using to steward and build, it's used to oppress and exploit. Now it's seen as a tool by which we gain for ourselves in order to succeed. It is not seen as something that is positive, but a negative force in this world. And it's this corruption and abuse of power that God condemns in the book of Micah. And specifically throughout the book, he condemns three groups whom it says in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that they perform wickedness and work evil because it is in the power of their hand. He condemns rulers who abuse our political power and authority in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, you heads of Jacob and rulers of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight? The, in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 3, the prince and the judge ask for a bribe. Rulers with authority. He also condemns the rich who abuse their economic power. In chapter 6, he says, shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. The, wine, the women you drive out of their homes, from the children you take away my splendor. And finally, Micah condemns the religious who abuse the power of the church. In chapter 3, he says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. All three groups used the power they had, not to serve or build, but to destroy and gain. And in a lot of ways, the abuse of power still exists today. I have here in my hand a key that's from uh, India. And a key very similar to this was used by a man named Kansami, who uh, owned a very large rice mill in southeastern India. But he not only... Uh, owned a large rice mill. He actually owned over a hundred slaves. People like uh, the, pic- the man pictured in your bulletin on page 11, Rahman. Rahman was one of those slaves. He was born a slave in the rice mill. He married a slave in that rice mill. And his children all, once they became old enough, became slaves in that rice mill. And people like Rahman are forced into slavery Usually by needing to pay back a debt, sometimes as small as 5 to $10, that Kansami will give them, but then they have to work for them. 
And then he keeps them through violence and through keys like this where he locks up the families at night for years and generations for a $10 debt. One time, a group of men from this mill were able to actually escape uh, the, the mill, ran to the closest police station, and the police actually threw them back on the truck and brought them to Kansami. And it's because Kansami was a wealthy, powerful man in that village. And the police did not want to mess with him. Power being abused. It's this injustice that God condemns. But as Micah condemns man's abuse of power, he also commends God's absolute power. God's power serves as a contrast to man's. We see uh, three things. We see a God who uses his power to serve the weak. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Right? He rescues the oppressed from their enemies. In chapter 2, he says, I will gather Israel like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. In chapter 5, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. I love that. He uses his power, his strength, to shepherd and nurture, to care, to draw near his people. In chapter 4, verse 6, In that day I will assemble the lame. The lame I will make the remnant, those who were cast off a strong nation. Right? He does not take advantage of the weak and frail, the lame, but instead he exalts them and blesses them. We also see a God who, despite his power, identifies with the weak. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This uh, verse here is actually a reference to the coming Jesus, the great Messiah. But what's amazing about this verse is what? That this great prophesied Messiah, who is going to be the Savior of the world, who's going to bring the kingdom of God, is going to come from where? Micah says, a clan so small and insignificant within the tribe of Judah that this infinite God identifies with the small and and unprivileged, not the rich. Jim Hatch is uh, one of the church planning directors for the PCA. And uh, he he, uh, was a a good mentor of mine. And he sent this uh, this little uh, um, blog, this journal entry that he wrote, And he writes this. Our handyman lives down the street. He mows our lawn, does odd jobs, and has become a friend. He collects aluminum cans and sells them to add to his meager income. So we save our cans for him. One day as I was walking our dog, I cruised by the trash cans in our neighborhood and noticed scores of aluminum cans. So I got ready to take a can out of the trash. But I stopped and walked on. It happened again. There was a can, but I walked on. Why? Because I was embarrassed. Nearby were some other walkers in spiffy outfits, and I knew they all might see me digging in the trash. 
What's wrong with you? I asked myself, what's the big deal? And then it hit me. I was embarrassed to be identified with the poor. After all, I'm not that kind of a guy who has to dig into the trash for what I need. I then remembered the one who himself had no place to lay his head, the one who came to proclaim good news to the poor, who ultimately became poor, that I, through his poverty, might become rich. The poor, the very ones Jesus identifies with. What an amazing story, right? What an amazing God we have. Right? As our sister Jean said, that sometimes we see these people in Baltimore and say, well, it's those people. But Jesus never does that. He said, these are my people. I became like them. I identify fully with them. But most importantly, we see a God who demonstrates his power by becoming weak. In chapter 7, verses 18 to 19, it says, Who is a God like you, parting iniquity and passing our transgression for the remnant? He delights in steadfast love. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our God has the power to condemn, and yet he forgives. He pardons our iniquities. How? By becoming weak himself, as Jim Hatch said. Right? As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, For Christ was crucified in weakness, In Philippians 2, 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. One of the reasons why I always love telling the story of Rahman is because of this one prayer he said that he prayed one night while he was enslaved. And he said this, he was not a Christian yet. He said in his prayer one night, If there is a God, won't he open his eyes and come here in the form of a man and bring us freedom? What an amazing pre-prayer. If there is a God, won't he open his eyes and come here in the form of a man and bring us freedom. Now I tell you, that is one of the best definitions of the gospel I can ever find. Right? That is what God did. Ramon just didn't know it yet. He became a man. He became weak, though he was God. That he might die on the cross. That we might be set free to become rich in him, to become strong in him, that through his poverty, we are made whole. That is the kind of God we have, a God of infinite power, and yet he uses it to serve, to build, to exalt, to identify with those who are weak. And the means by which God reveals this paradoxical gospel power to the world is through the church. As we use our power redemptively, we show people the true definition of power 
As it says in Micah 6, 8, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? That is what power needs to look like. He calls us to use our power to serve and care for the weak and not ourselves. And all of us have power, resources, times, treasures, and talents. We have power to use it to serve and care for the weak, to also reflect Christ by humbling ourselves and identifying with the weak. In other words, to understand cognitively, to sympathize emotionally with the plight of the weak, to identify with them, not to push them away, to say, I just can't understand these things but to identify and to draw near to them. To become weak in order that those who are weak might become strong. In other words, to give of ourselves. To sacrifice. In order that these people might find freedom and wholeness. As Tim Keller says, a pastor in New York, out of the cross comes the resurrection. Out of weakness comes real strength. Out of giving away and serving other comes real power. All of us have this potential of redemptive power that can do amazing things. And IGM really has seen this potential in many ways throughout their times, their 16 years. After months of investigation, IGM was able to free Rahman and his family along with 34 others. Uh, IGM, along with police officers, were able to conduct a raid and free them. And after a three-year court battle, which is very, very common, three-year court battle, the slave owner was finally convicted to five years in prison. Now, that might not seem like a long sentence for having over a hundred slaves and being a cruel man. But you have to understand, this was the first conviction of slavery in this part of India since the 1800s. And thus, it was a huge miracle. We've seen God's amazing power in places like Cambodia. And recently, the office in Cambodia has, has done a, uh, a survey and a study to see how they've done in the past 15 years. And during the, I mean, past 10 years. During the past 10 years, IGM has been able to rescue over 200 children from forced prostitution. Some were as young as actually five years old. IGM specifically, especially in these, uh, with uh, Sex trafficking can only free children who are minors, 18 and younger. 18 and older, they have to convince them to come out. But to actually forcibly remove prostitutes, anybody under 18, they can do that. And that's the kind of work that they do, mainly with children. And so this is child prostitution, over 200 in the past 10 years. When IJM first worked in Phnom Penh, 30% of the prostitutes were under the age of 13. Okay, 30%. Now in 2014, only 1% are under the age of 13. And now their focus is actually on 14 to 17. That sort of bracket that nobody really, you know, worries about. You know, sort of that gray area that now IJM is trying to crack down on. More than that, now less than 11% of the entertainment businesses, clubs and bars, even offer prostitution anymore because, Why? It's too much of a risk now. Because no longer can they do this with impunity. They're actually, the laws are being enforced. 
and now they're scared. The needs are still so great. And really, the one thing I ask of all of us is to educate yourselves and pray. Right? That is the greatest power we have in our hands. Prayer. Because we are weak and he is strong. And thus, the greatest thing you can do is educate yourself and pray. And that's what happened to us. I had no desire to go to the IJM prayer conference. My wife did. And being... Um, you know, a pastor, I couldn't say to her, I don't want to pray about justice. So I went with her, but I didn't really want to drive two hours to go to D.C. to this conference. I didn't know anything about this organization. And my life was changed. Right? Another reason we should listen to our wives. (laughs) My life was changed. Because of what? Education. God opened my eyes. That's what this card will hopefully do for you. Spend some time, fill it out, and get these prayer updates where you can learn about what's going on and what they are doing, and pray the greatest thing that you can do. There's a table downstairs that I have set up where I can answer more questions, and if you want, you can uh, fill this out and bring this to me down in the fellowship hall. Um, As I close... um, Again, we have twins, and my wife was part of what's called uh, Mothers of Multiples. They have them actually throughout the nation, Mothers of Multiples. And while we were in Philadelphia, she joined Mothers of Multiples. And she was having this play date, and she's the only Christian there. And inevitably, uh, the conversation of what your spouses do uh, came up. And it was her time, and she always sort of gets like nervous <laughs> about how to answer that question. And it was her turn, and they asked, what does your husband do? And she said, well, he's a pastor. And they're like, well, what does he do? Um, And she said, well, you know, he particularly at his church does things like our uh, tutoring ministry to the poor in Philadelphia, in West Philly. Uh, He does a lot of international justice work and things like that. And it was so interesting. I'll never forget this. Uh, My wife was telling me that this one Jewish lady in that playgroup turned to her and with a straight face said, well, I didn't know Christians cared about those kinds of things. And you know what uh, really uh, affected me about that statement, even though I wasn't there to hear it, was not like, oh, I'm ashamed for the church's reputation. Or, I, you know, like, oh, you know, we don't want to be seen as hypocrites. That actually was not my greatest concern. My greatest concern was this. There is no God who has a greater heart for justice than our God. There is no God who demonstrated mercy in such an inexplicable way as Jesus. And thus, of all the places that should reflect justice and mercy, should it not be the children of such a God. Let's pray. I thank you so much, not for the work of IJM, not for the work of Samaritan women. I thank you for who you are. What an amazing God you are. What an amazing, loving, merciful God. What a humble God you are. A God of action, 
of God of compassion, a God who weeps, a God who hears and is not silent. Oh, I thank you for who you are. And I pray, oh, Father God, that we may have the privilege and joy of being people who may join in your heart. We pray all this in your name. Amen.